Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to this new day, this new week. Uh, I want to remind you uh, of something that uh, maybe is not quite so clear from, from your side, but how immensely grateful I am that you show up, uh, that you connect, that you offer yourself, whether you come forward and speak or just hold the space for others. What a gift that is and how humbled I am that uh, we're able to meet in this way. So thank you. Thank you for that. And in that spirit and uh, with our, our shared intention, the intention that we sometimes chant at the end of services in a Zen temple, there's a small verse that says, may our intentions equally extend to every being and every place, the true merit of Buddha's way. May our intentions in our sitting extend and permeate the world with the goodness, uh, which is our, our hope, of course. So in that vein, we will um, begin our, our sitting. <clears throat> and enjoy this uh, time of silence and stillness and upright presence with each other in the world.
we'll do our verse of the robe. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Each time we offer these chants, uh, having done them for so many years, um, it's easy for them to become um, ordinary, rote, even background, but to um, speak them with a fresh mind and um, an open heart and a voice that's actually speaking in the present is really, really useful to understand what's being communicated about our current situation, about our practice, about our situation with each other, and about all the people who have practiced for centuries that have brought us this um, wisdom and this way of compassion, uh, which allows us to live in the world in a certain way. No matter what your religion of your childhood that you may continue to enjoy and find great sustenance in, um, these small teachings and these practices can be useful in deepening that wisdom tradition. Whether you're uh, Christian or Jewish or Islamic or on and on, whatever your, uh, your faith tradition that, that you live in, this is one of the things that's beautiful about the Buddhist teachings because they're non-theistic. They, they don't attempt to answer a question about um, God and um, things like that. It offers you practices to try to engage in and to see if this deepens your tradition. So it's, it's something universal about it and something beautiful in that way. When we chant um, the chant of the robe, and we we mention um, this thing about wearing the universal teachings, realizing the one true nature that harmonizes all being. We realize the oneness at the center of all these many ways that are quite different and unique. They aren't the same. They are unique, uh, express themselves, but there's something at the center of it, and this is what we attempt to um, to touch. Another thing that's beautiful, I really appreciate a lot in these inquiry sessions is that there are people who are longtime Zen practitioners. There are many people who have backgrounds from Buddhist traditions other than Zen. And then there are a huge number of people out of the large body of, of folks who are coming online who don't have that much formal um, experience, practice, or training in one of the Buddhist lineages. So as I speak, I always have to remember, and gratefully so, beginner's mind, that I'm not speaking to an audience that may uh, have references to some of the things that I'm, I'm calling for, for some kind of inspiration or some sort of uh, deep questioning, uh, some way of opening up our lives to fresh air and a little more freedom. So I really, I really enjoy that. And that's one of the things that I'd like to do today. There is um, a brief um, teaching or verse. Um, sometimes we, we call them sutras. Uh, classically, a sutra is something spoken by the Buddha. But <clears throat> this one comes from the way of the elders, the Theravadan tradition from India and Southeast Asia. It wasn't actually part of Chan or Zen, um, but it, 
in San Francisco Zen Center began to be chanted because it's so essential and so uh, resonant with our way, which is uh, a bodhisattva way, which is practicing for the benefit of all beings, not just for our, ourselves. And this is the loving kindness meditation or the metta sutta. And I'm choosing it today, you'll, you'll see for uh, quite an obvious uh, set of reasons, I, I think will be um, clearer as we go through it because of the, um, the time in which we're, we find ourselves right now. And as you know, over the last uh, few weeks and months, because things have been so intense, I've attempted as best I can to relate uh, the teachings to what's, what we're immersed in. Um, sometimes we, it's, it's really wonderful to practice just for the sake of practice. Um, but right now engagement is so crucial. I wanted to bring this, this forward. And because it's not particularly long, it's on one page, and because some of you aren't familiar with it, I'll sc screen share it in just a moment so we can go through it and, and you can see the words as I, I read the words. When I was training at San Francisco Zen Center and also at Tassajara uh, doing monastic training, the Metta Sutta, the Loving Kindness Sutra, was something that we chanted uh, now and then during liturgy, morning liturgy, but very frequently, every single day, when we engaged in work practice, when we would go and do whatever work we were doing in the monastery or the temple to keep things going, because it takes quite a bit of work to maintain these facilities, uh, work like gardening or taking care of the roads or the buildings, doing painting and constructions, certainly cooking food and cleaning up, um, cleaning the zendo, the meditation hall, just so much work all the time. And when we would get together in our work circles to get ready for uh, work, we would always chant the metta sutta. And so over time, even this longer one uh, becomes memorized and uh, is very beautiful. And it's an interesting way to think about where we are right now with whatever your response to the um, election, uh, the ongoing election, the, the, the ongoing unfolding of this transition, um, there has been a good bit of um, joy from a number of people, at least from those people who have felt like uh, the results of the election might go in a direction that they would, they would agree with. But also, very quickly, there's this sense of, and now there's a lot of work to do. So this is our work period. This is our period of, of orienting ourselves to, to focus on what's ahead. And I think that you'll see how this is a beautiful prescription for that. In fact, secretly, just as a kind of a joke, but not really so joking, I thought this would be actually the perfect thing for any representative, any senator, a president, any person in public office to have as part of their inauguration or their um, stepping into their uh, work for the benefit of others. So here's, here are the words. I'm gonna offer it to you so you can see it along with me. <clears throat> On your screen, you should be able to see me still on the right-hand side, I think, uh, so I can stay with you. <clears throat> the loving-kindness meditation or the metta sutta. Uh, let's read through it just once. I'll, I'll read it, and then we'll go back through and I'll make a few comments. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. 
And let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean, or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. So I'm sure as I was reading through this that you have probably <clears throat> heard echoes, had things come up in you that spoke to our current situation. I've made a few little line breaks in here which actually don't exist in the sutra. The first part this is what might be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. You see in that first section a description of essentially what it means to be an upright, ethical human being. To bring yourself forward with uprightness and sincerity, without pride, not submerged by the things of the world. And that line about not taking upon oneself the burden of riches, it doesn't say don't take upon yourself riches, the burden of riches. Don't be burdened by whatever riches you receive. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. We're certainly seeing examples of that. Let one do nothing that is mean that the wise would reprove. All of these are admonitions and invitations for a different way of being than we certainly have seen uh, so much from every corner of our <clears throat> cultural sphere these days. What if this is the way we all shared as a way to step forward in an ethical and moral way of assisting each other? This is in some ways a nod to the precepts or uh, the ethical behavior that we start with in practice. It's our foundation in practice. The second section, of course, then is based on that orientation towards the world, which is ethical and kind. We want to offer goodness. May all beings be happy. May they joy us and live in safety. And then that beautiful section where no one is left out. No one is left out. All living beings, weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born. And I would add, no matter what color their skin, no matter their religious affiliation, no matter what country they're born in, may all beings be happy. And then the lines which suggest that if we're not truthful, we are not going to be loving. Let no one deceive another. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. That's an interesting one. <laughs> not despise any being in a red or blue state or any state of being. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Those two lines are so powerful right now. And then 
with an ethical framework and our desire for everyone to be included. It's a foundation for Black Lives Matter, for, for everything. We enter that next section, which is an analogy for how to, how to practice. And those beautiful lines in the beginning, even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child. Like that, like that, with a boundless heart and mind. And remember that word that's translated here as mind and um, the Eastern languages is heart and mind is the same word. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living things. Suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world. An infinite goodwill toward every other country, every other people. And then the different postures that the Buddha suggested we offer these practices in, standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, all noble postures for practice. And when do we do this? During all one's waking hours. And how do we practice? With gratitude. With gratitude. Some of you have heard me say before, when I was training with my primary psychotherapy mentor, John Gladfelter, I did some interviews with him. And a couple of those interviews you can actually see on YouTube on the Appamata channel. And I asked him at one point, um, what is the difference between people who seem to benefit quite well from the relational aspects of psychotherapy and those who don't seem to be able to use it so much or doesn't seem to be as quite as effective? And he paused for just a moment, but then he responded with a statement that I found surprising. It's not what I expected him to say. He said, the difference is the capacity to experience gratitude. And as I thought about it deeper, there's a certain maturational quality which is required to not be self-centered, trying to always get and soften one's heart and one's mind and one's hand to offer and to feel the gratefulness of life. And that requires a certain kind of gratitude which makes available transformation and further maturation in the world instead of a clinging to a smallness and to a self-centeredness. And all of that, those first three sections as I've separated them here, offer this joyful practice, how one should enter practice how you offer your practice, how you deepen the love that's at the center of that practice. And then it's almost as if there's a little addendum at the end. Not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. There are five lines which suggest What's the deep practice turning, which actually allows us to come back to the beginning? And how does one accomplish this way of wisdom? How does one offer themselves in the world where seeking the good, obtaining peace, being upright and sincere without pride? How does that happen? And I'm going to go down just a little bit further here so you can see some um, ancient things that came from the Buddhist teachings. The Sanskrit words you don't need to know. I'm just... Uh, when we chant, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, we're speaking of clinging. And these are things that the Buddha taught. Dutupadana, he says, the first form, clinging to views and opinions. And if you look at the Metta Sutra, what's the first one? Not holding to fixed views. Suffering is produced by clinging to views and opinions. 
Atavadopadana. Once again, no reason to remember that word. It's just kind of fun to try to say. <laughs> Clinging to the idea of a self. And that second line is endowed with insight. And the crucial insight of the Buddha was there's no individually existing self. That we're all in this together. In fact, it's not even together. There's just one thing happening, expressing itself in this myriad of, of ways. And then another three. Kamupadana, clinging to sense pleasures, is another barrier to freedom. And the third line, freed from sense appetites. It doesn't suggest that you shouldn't have the joy of our senses. But if, those, if the appetites of the senses become the thing that directs you, that becomes your vow, that becomes your practice, that becomes what drives you. And that can disturb the greater vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. And then Silabhatu Padana, that's a hard one. This is clinging to uh, conventions, to gurus, to meditative techniques, to um, these outside religious kind of things. And the fourth line says, one who achieves the way, the way of compassion. In fact, those last two lines in our chant, each moment life as it is, is the only teacher. That's the way. And being just this moment is the way of compassion. One who achieves the way, one who actually finds their own deep, essential Buddha nature and its expression. Then the last line will be freed from the duality of birth and death. And this is variously spoken about uh, maybe as nirvana, the freedom from all of these clinging, all these forms of clinging, is liberation from duality from dividing up reality in ways that is the cycle of suffering. Birth and death is the, um, the big name for the duality. It doesn't necessarily mean birth and rebirth. You can go down that road, but that's not necessary here. So in a way, you have this beautiful, joyful, swelling, inspiring sutra which tells us how to be in the world. And once again, I think is a perfectly good description of how we might want to move forward as a people right now with wisdom and goodness, with not being puffed up, but being wise, offering everyone around us the happiness they deserve and wish for, telling the truth, not deceiving people, not being guided by anger and hatred, like everyone is our only child and that we would care for them. And we would allow our open and loving heart to extend everywhere to everyone, no matter what our place, our posture, or what our practice is, and to feel grateful for that way of life. And then if we can not hold to our views so strongly, which causes division. If we can be endowed with insight that we're all part of one thing, there aren't two aisles, there are not two colors, there's not two. And we can be freed from grasping for just our own pleasure, our own sense of rightness, and achieving the, the way beyond any dogma or any beliefs, then we're going to be freed from this tearing, destructive separation. And we'll be called back to our basic nature, which is full of loving kindness, full of compassion, expressed through equanimity and sympathetic joy and the joy for other people. So I hope that you have a good sense of the Metta Sutra, the Loving Kindness Sutra, and how beautiful it is. It's really worth uh, chanting on a regular basis as a deep form of practice. It's not simply, may all beings be happy. You can see that there's a lot to it. And that it, towards the end, it falls into the most fundamental aspects of 
practice and freedom. And so if this has called forward questions for you, things you'd like to comment on that deepen your practice, because um, remember this discussion isn't a, uh, necessarily a political one, it's really a practice one, uh, <clears throat> we can uh, meet and continue uh, speaking about these things in ways that might help you release some of the clinging to your views and offer the opportunity to rest in a deeper feel of, of loving kindness for yourself and, and for all beings. Because remember, we're included in this. So please raise your hand and Jessica will help you come forward so that we can meet. And by the way, the Metta Sutta is in the Appamata chant book. If you go to the Appamata website and look under study, there's a little drop down with certain things, including the chant book, which you can um, download as a PDF. And the Metta Sutra, along with all the other things that uh, we speak about, are there. Hello, Sheila. Hi, Flint. Well, it's always just good old news. It's always new. <laughs> oh, the meta, the meta sutra. Um, I have, I have enjoyed the initial chant that we do, the robe liberation, and I believe in that one you usually say, or we usually say, beings, plural. And today, it's actually, being though. But today, you definitely said being yeah and you also said one happening beings you know the meaning it came anew to me today was I, beings sound like entities that sound mm -hmm. like discrete plural well, you bring that up because we often will uh, sort of encourage and correct people and say you know it doesn't say uh, harmonize all beings it says harmonize all being being and then mm -hmm. when you said it's one happening the happening is like a verb instead of beings like entities. That's right. I, That's right. I just appreciate hearing that again today. Well, good. I'm glad that you're, you're underscoring that. Even the sense of, of um, when we say everything is connected, that assumes that they're separate and then mm -hmm. they would connect. Mm -hmm. It isn't actually connected. There's one activity, which is the vastness of life. It expresses itself in particularity in all these different ways, but nothing is separated out. It's all part of one thing. And that changes everything when we really get that deeply. The formless field. That's right. I mean, these are these are separate fingers, but they're one hand. And, and it's wonderful to have the differences and the absolutely and diversity and senses, but all together. Absolutely. So thank you. That's it's nice. Oh, it's also why it's also why we bring our hands together in Gashou. It isn't just because we're like mimicking Asian people. It's a it's an interesting practice of bringing together all these particularities into one and bringing them together, the duality of um, relative and absolute, and then feeling grateful in response to that that understanding. It's so key that gratitude is. Yeah, yeah, it's the, the essential place to, to go. Thank you. If you're not sure what to practice, always turn towards curiosity. Mm -hmm. If you're not sure what quality to rest in, gratitude. Ah, I like that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Sheila. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We see Chris's name, but I know Chris well enough to know that sometimes it just takes a minute for his system to connect. Not his personal system, but it's... <laughs> there he is. 
Um, uh, hi, Flint. That that was that was confusing. You mean coming on here? Uh, well, and I looked like there were two other people. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get there. It's a uh, it's nice to have a crowd, you know. <laughs> so this this came up from the reading of the the Metta Sutta, and it's haven't. This is new thoughts, so I'm probably going to stumble through it. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, I don't want to hate. I don't want to carry that mm -hmm. inside me. And I'm having a very hard time with that right now. Mm -hmm. And I feel so traumatized um, that I'm feeling so traumatized right now that I I'm feeling like the only way I can deal with it is to withdraw from everything withdraw from the entire worldly realm and that's certainly not the first time I've had that that feeling that urge but it's the first time it's come up in the context of my practice. And that, I feel sure that that is not the middle way. And I'm having trouble navigating that. I'm in so much distress mm -hmm. about what looks to me like the destruction of the order of the world. Uh, well, you're in, you're in good company, of course. Yeah. You know that. I want to go back to the, your very first statements. So you're essentially saying that you know that your deepest intention, and I might even say vow, is to be non-hateful, non-destructive. You don't yeah. want to be a violent person. So that's your intention. Yes. And you can feel how that intention isn't necessarily in alignment with some of the ways you feel and think. Because of, so you're in good company with all of that. All of us are going to be triggered at various times, uh, be outraged at least about some things, and each of us has our own version. So when we read in the Metta Sutta, all beings be happy, and we talk about above, below, and all around without limit, and we talk about born to be, we do all of those things, that litany includes the part of you that feels hate. That we would offer loving kindness to that one, not just those, but also that one who you can tell isn't in alignment with your deepest. What we often will do is demonize or try to push away or correct. But now we've actually stepped off the medicine to heaven we? That, that let none by anger or harm, you know, wish harm to another. We don't want to do that. So it's like, okay, what if we include even that one? Because you know that's not your deepest intention. You know that's not actually your deepest self. And yet it does arise. So we have to remember our vow and our intention. We have to turn toward the parts that aren't aligned with that, hold them in loving kindness. So there's some possibility that we could also maybe do that on the outside. That's one piece of what you said. And secondly, the other thing I want to comment on is the idea of wanting to withdraw because you feel traumatized. I think a lot of us experience something that's pretty close to PTSD for the last few years, and not simply because of um, political things, for many, many things, mm. you know, with the, the, the pandemic and with the issues around racism and the plant, everything. Yeah. And do you remember last week what I was capable of? I said, I can't actually meet you and talk. I want to offer this poem. I want to offer our shared intention. I want to sit together. But I don't think it's a good idea to talk about this stuff right now. We need to sit on election day. We need to sit together. Um, and partly I thought that was appropriate for the day but I was also paying attention to what I could manage. 
And so sometimes you do have to, that doesn't mean forever I'm going to step away. But there are times when we do have to step back, it's useful. And not in a way that is rejecting, although that hateful one in us might want to do that. It's, it's a way of, it's like your kitty. When a kitty is sick, they go under the bed or whatever, you know, for a little bit to recover. And you know from your Hakomi practice how important integration is, as important as what you actually do. The time for integration, time for healing. And so sometimes it is useful. The caveat is you can also pull away and then get lost in your self-centered dream. Because you're just in your own small world. If you step back to heal, but you keep a warm hand and a warm heart you know, connected, that's fine. But if you turn away as a way of rejecting the world, then it can go badly. So there's an edge there, which I know you're familiar with. Here's another part that confuses me. When I, I, I have done this pulling away in my, in my imagination, I, I haven't really gone into it. But when I imagine myself going into it, then I am no longer in the equation. Mm -hmm. And because I'm not affected, I can look at Donald Trump with loving kindness. I can look at many people and situations with loving kindness and, and it's real. Right. And so I don't know whether that's a good thing that I've gone there or whether I'm in some sort of self-denial. You mean when you go to that place where you're not in the equation so much? Yes. You can tell by asking yourself this question. Are you creating more suffering for yourself and others? Or are you creating less suffering for yourself or others? In, in that situation, less. Right. Nothing's going to be perfect, Chris. And no one action is going to be total, but it can be better. And that's why we have to keep paying attention because there's going to be something that's going to happen in response to what we do. And if we pay, keep paying attention, we'll see, oh, that was useful or, oh, that needs to be corrected. You know, it's like, there's always a way that we're responding to the world. There isn't like, okay, got it. Right. But if you just ask yourself that simple question, is this creating more suffering for me and others? Is creating less suffering for me and others? Then at least you're, you're not in the ditch. At least you're on the road, even if you're careening yeah. <laughs> somewhere, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. These are wonderful questions and very practical and they're things that many, many people share. So, and I will, I'm gonna say this just to the side because I thought about it. I don't know why, out of the blue. Oh, I do know, because I saw something on television about what was happening in Greece. And I thought, gosh, if Chris would have taken his trip to Greece, he would be gone during all this and he would be in the middle of this pandemic. And so it just, you came to my mind in a very warm way in my heart. So. And there were some other folks in line there, so I hope I get to see them. <clears throat> I saw Mede and some others. Okay. Hello. Hello there. So long to see you. I know, I know. So I have a question about the um, concept of belonging that mm -hmm. you talked about. This is something that I think I've struggled with for a long time. And, you know, when I was I was born in Puerto Rico and I came to the US as a 13 year old and I remember feeling that sense of segregation for this first time and mm -hmm. seeing how people tended to group themselves in and I'm wondering, and then of course, now that we have, this is kind of at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking more and more about this and thinking, well, is it, you know, I didn't, I'm kind of trying to find my place. Like, mm 
if I move, you know, so I basically move temporarily to San Diego, just finding my place, finding, trying to find a place where I belong. Mm -hmm. I found out that this is not my place. So now I'm trying to, I'm going to go back to Austin and then figure out where to go from there. But I guess my question is, how do you really, I mean, is it, is it, me is it it's an internal sense of belonging or is it i mean because i do feel the racism at some points i do feel it's a real thing yeah. i just i don't know how to tell the difference between that like sense of belonging how, you, how do you, i'm sorry go ahead oh i just i'm sorry to interrupt you are you asking how do you tell the difference between the external forces, which in fact do include racism and division, and the internal forces that might keep you separate that are part of you. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I guess so. I, I just don't know. Like when you read that, you know, I I felt like, of course, I'm an, a newbie, you know, so I'm like, I would love to feel like we're all one. And, but the reality of is that there's always a sense of the other uh -huh. in like the human world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you just spoke about three different realities, what you feel and the human world and the larger view. The larger view through practice, the realization that we come to is we see what Sheila was talking about, this thing about we're all actually one being and that's not difficult to conceptualize it's difficult to really realize deeply the cultural way in which it's expressed isn't like that a lot of times mostly there's division so that's another reality isn't the big r reality it's local realities that you don't experience racism segregation and then there's what you feel which is very personal and just because you don't feel, there, there are times when, I'm sure you've had this, I know other people have, where you're in the middle of people who love you and you don't feel like you belong. So your feelings can be very different than what looks like reality. And there are times when you might feel at home and like you belong and suddenly you realize people are staring at you weird and you don't have a place. So you can't go just with your feelings, but you have to count them. You can't go just with the prevailing reality because there's a larger reality but you can't just hide out in the large reality because you might get hurt because there are people that are mean it's a complicated dance isn't it mm -hmm. the practices that are offered and shared in a sangha help us over time get clearer and clearer and clearer about these things so that we find when we say I haven't found my place. It may, basically what I hear you saying is I haven't found people who love me, who choose me, that I can rest in. And that's important, no matter what their age, shape, color, race, you know, no matter. There's people you can rest in. That's what you want. Systematic racism is going to continue until it doesn't, hopefully. You know, that's not going to change. But what you can find are people who care about you. And it's not going to be geography and it's not going to be climate. It's, it's going to be people who care about you and, and hold you. And hopefully that's what a Sangha is for. That's what Apamata is for, is to hold you in that way. And in that space in which you're held, you can tolerate and other people can tolerate all the things you feel. You can face things that are difficult. You can dive deeper into this larger reality that you share. And over time, that's transformational. Mm. that is the weaving of these things and I know we have just a short time and it's a very big question but I hope that that way of thinking gives you a little bit of distinction but none of it sorts out until you're with people who love you it's only then that it's safe enough that you can rest and relax into all the, the stuff you know that we have to deal with with each other and turn to each other and help each other. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we touch on here a bit, you know.
So I'm sure that when it's time, you'll be welcome back to Austin and there'll be people there who will listen and touch and care for you. And now they've heard you say it, so now they know. <laughs> and there's a, a wonderful woman who's part of our Sangha who actually lives in, in Dallas, but all of her family's from uh, Puerto Rico. So mm. I'll figure out a way to connect you up, okay? Oh, I would love that. Maybe she's listening today. We'll see, okay? Thank you. Thanks, Olga. just muted there, Dr. Sharifian. There you go. Okay. Well, how nice hey. to see you. And this is wonderful, wonderful to see you. Oh, great. I'm enjoying the conversation and the questions. And I think some have been answered. Ah. But uh, just uh, to a little bit clarify for myself, uh, yeah. Uh, regarding you know the relational aspects the emotional resonance between the me and other yes and the concepts of a true self and a true other other and that uh, there is a uh, in between uh, this both are there is a truth in between, you know, when you resonate and you, you know, the belief mm -hmm. of two people. And then that is sort of a called truth at the moment. Yes. And in a way, it's being considered good enough as Winnicott has used it. Yes, yes. So I, uh, I am enjoying these concepts, you know, and being with myself, being with others. And at the same time, you know, to uh, stay back and then evaluate the whole thing, mm -hmm. my beliefs. And uh, so I wanted to, and then the other aspect is, you know, those four foundations of mindfulness that, you know, mm -hmm. beautifully you have described. And then you come to the point that <clears throat> eventually you have to turn your mind towards the experience. Yes. And the experience that I am sort of in my mind, you know, with the individual emotional experience and mindfulness, which I don't know how much emphasis, and that's what I am asking, whether the experience, you know, we can put some emphasis on emotional experience mm -hmm. or basically on some other, you know, maybe practical, you know, aspects. Sure. That's a good question. I, I, I cleared my... Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you how I'm hearing it. <laughs> if, we, if we practice mindfulness for the cultivation of wisdom without compassion and loving kindness, we get a lot of clarity, but it's very cold. Absolutely. And it may be clear, but it's cold, you know. Absolutely. If we practice loving kindness and or compassion without wisdom, we can be foolish and just wrapped up in our feelings or do things that are foolish. That's why wisdom and compassion need to come together so that we can think about our feelings and feel about what we're thinking and they move together. And that, this may be overly simplistic, but from your background, I know you'll understand it. My mentor, I asked one time what his definition of maturity was. He said the ability to think and feel at the same time. It's not bad, you know, it's because it's the kind of essence of the question you're talking about. I think so. I'm going to say something very personal and vulnerable in this. Because I spend so much time doing this mm. and spent 40 something years in psychotherapy also. And I know you've experienced this. You see some of the most beautiful things in people, mm -hmm. indescribably beautiful as they transform, as they open, as they, they change. And that gives me so much hope and possibility and courage to, to, and at the same time, the very same time, we see the fragility, the partiality, 
the imperfection, the struggle, the vulnerability, which just makes me weep. And these things are true at the very same time. This beauty is a frayed, imperfect beauty, but it's, it's what people have and it's remarkable, but it requires a big heart and an open mind to hold that. And that's some of what I think you're actually wanting to touch. And I know in your, at your age and your maturity, both in your psychological work and your spiritual work, this is, I just wanted to speak to that. Wonderful. It brings the imper impermanence yes. idea to me. Exactly. And I, I enjoy it. I think this is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's life. It's life. It's life. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so much, Mini. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And it looks like we have just uh, less than a minute. And so it's probably a good idea to, uh, to offer our final chant and uh, look forward to speaking to uh, more people next time as well. So as we're offering the four practice principles, also see them as an expression of loving kindness in the way that we, we spoke about there at the end. Okay, here we go. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, Compassion's way. Thank you so much for your presence, uh, your participation, and your continued practice. And thank you, I'll say on my own, I sincerely appreciate the ways that you offer your generosity by your presence and by your practice and also the support that you offer us to continue to make this happen. It means a lot to me, and I hope that it means something to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Appamata's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity, and your support makes a huge difference. There is a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. You can leave a contribution for Appamata directly or for Flint or for any of the teachers. And if you would like to get together in a more casual way uh, right now, you could head on over to the after inquiry link on the appamata.org main calendar. And that way we will find each other and have a little bit of time to talk and say hello. Thank you.